Hello, my name is Dotun Holoporoku, and this is Building the Future Podcast. I believe the African story will be written by Africans, and there are people crafting the narrative now. This podcast is a series of conversations with people whose ideas and work is shaping the African future. My guest today is Eric Idiahi. Eric is a co-founder and partner at Veror Capital, a private equity firm based out of Lagos, Nigeria. Veror is one of the top PE firms in the continent with a significant number of successful exits as well as admirable money multiples record from their previous fund. Eric is someone I've known from a distance. So when we met at a dinner late last year, I invited him to be a guest on this podcast and he graciously obliged. In this episode, we discussed how he and his partner, Dan Ladi, started Verod in 2008 by working with other investors on a deal-by-deal basis. We talked about the fundamental differences between PE and VC model, especially the way it's done in Africa, how to maintain a balance between portfolio support, value creation, and investor control. We discussed exits and how investors can think about it and position their portfolio companies for that event. And of course, we discussed COVID, what it means for businesses in Africa and how to frame its inherent challenge and opportunity. I hope you enjoy this conversation as much as I did. Eric, welcome to Building the Future podcast. Thank you very much. It's good to have you. I've read a lot about you. I've known about you from afar and I've always admired how you guys are building the firm and what you're investing in. So I want to start my question with, how did you get into the world of PE? What was your journey like to get into where you are right now? Uh, So for me, I started off um, actually always uh, dreaming about doing investing. As as, As a young kid, I remember 11, 12, 13-year-old kid, I, I was reading a lot about Warren Buffett. Then I was fascinated with um, how to invest and uh, the process of investing. and actually fascinated about owning and uh, managing different companies or having oversights over different companies. So it's something I always wanted to do. When I moved back to Nigeria in 2005, after school, I started working in the financial services industry. I was working as a, a, a firm called Financial Derivatives, providing financial advisory services. And uh, subsequently, after advising a few companies on raising money, I said, hey, I think uh, instead of advising on raising money, I should be raising money for myself or investing in these companies and helping grow these companies. Because looking at the companies, I thought a lot of things that they could have done to be a lot more efficient. I had a good friend who I admired uh, a lot. And I reached out to him and said, hey, we should consider setting up an, a firm to really go and invest in businesses and advise his business on how to scale and grow from there. My friend, who's now my partner, Danladi Vrahai. So after a few months uh, of uh, almost a year of going back and forth on the idea, uh, we decided to set up what is now today, Vera Capital in 2008. Uh, but back then, with two young guys in the PE investing space, we couldn't really go out there and raise a typical fund. Uh, at that point in time, I think the only Capital Alliance was the only proper fund in existence. And they had just uh, finished uh, deploying a $30 million fund. They were raising another fund at, at around 2008. Um, so we decided to start off by uh, looking at deals on a deal-by-deal basis. Uh, so we found, we're looking for deals we found that we could go to friends, family, and raise money on the back of those deals to invest in those companies. So that's how I got my start. We did a few deals, uh, about eight deals like that, where we found interesting companies or interesting opportunities or came up with interesting ideas and uh, went to people we had in our network 
invested with them and raised money and invested in, in companies and through the businesses uh, were quite successful uh, in a number of deals we did and of course some not so successful but on the back of that we gained a good track record and we were able to go out and raise our first institutional fund maybe we should talk a little bit about your deal by deal basis investment which is quite interesting i met a lot of people who are trying to raise a fund and one of the challenges they have is it's very hard to raise a fund as a first time fund manager especially from institutions where you kickstarted that by initially just doing deals on your own so can you talk me through the kind of opportunities you went after then what were the returns expectations and how did you structure those deal with the investors that came on board Back then, there was no really set formula. What we did, uh, we found an opportunity. We'd go to investors we knew and say, "Okay, this is the opportunity we have. What is the best deal we can do with you?" In most cases, it followed the typical uh, PE model, where it's two twenty. But at that point in time, we didn't get any two. We didn't get any management fees because we found local investors were not willing to give us fees to manage their money. So it was more okay. You invest in this share of the profits, twenty percent. Uh, sometimes you get up to thirty percent of the profits you can actually take. After you sell the investments, so in every single deal, there's no standard way for every deal. So it was uh, we actually adapted as according to some of the investors that we were we approached. So we did in some cases we did a very interesting deal. So one of our more popular deals as a firm was GZ Industries, GZI, aluminium canning company. So that's a deal where we did uh, based on that structure and as principal investment opportunity. Uh, so we looked for several things like that we bought into our company then we, we, we didn't have any set industries we focused on so we did the manufacturing business uh we owned a company called rotoprint then which is a uh, labeling business which we bought uh also through the same way uh there are a few other things here and there we also invested then in an oil and gas business but that, that's deal by deal investing period for us to see deals with it were very critical for us to really understand investing understand structures and really gain a foothold in, in the markets which really helped us now and is helping us today in how we deploy capital and what we do with, with the firms we invested in do you have a set time that you agreed with investors or even with entrepreneurs for you to get your money out given you're using your own money to manage it no we didn't have any agreement to them we it was really open and they really have a, a set period uh, like a typical pe that says 10 years uh, it was let's invest in this and see how it, it, it plays out we ended up actually exiting every single business in an average time of about four, five years or so five six years interesting and who are the buyers did you do that on a secondary basis or some of them luckily went public most of them were secondaries yeah most of them were secondaries okay So so that's how you started. I am assuming that the economics would have been very hard at that point. You you're not making any management fee. You are really expecting the returns when investors make money. Uh, you're talking about 2008. I don't know a lot about the PE deals in Nigeria, but I would assume that it's quite new then as well. Can you walk me through how you are able to convince entrepreneurs to take your money and pathway with the equity? at that time so in, in essence it was not it was a, it was challenging I'll, i'll say that we knew what pe was some of the deals we did though were people that were just selling out 100% that we were moving out of the country or uh, the only part of their lives where things were changing so that was probably one of the easiest parts for us the other one like gz industries was pretty much a new business so we started with the founders so it was that point they had the money but so it, it was very tough conversations where people at that point just believed they could take debts not really give up any shares or any equity uh, so it was tough it was tough i think oh if i look over the last 12 years till today times have changed so entrepreneurs now understand pe a lot more uh, and it's easier to do deals than it was before 
so it's easier to convince entrepreneurs now to part with equity. Much but but it also raises a question around control. Um, I'm from the venture world, and so where we take minority stake in early, very early stage businesses, where the entrepreneurs don't even know what they're doing yet, so they don't have like too much emotional affinity to the business. But you're talking about some businesses that are maybe held 40 years in the family, their expectations, their control, their culture that you have to work with. And, and I want you to maybe dive into how do you navigate those complexities? It's a very very tough thing I notice with entrepreneurs, especially where we've invested in businesses where people, families have held them. For 40 years, 30 years or more. And, uh, and they're now actually, the second generation is actually actively involved in those businesses. So it's a very, very tough conversation to have with, with any family or anybody that's been in a business for such a long time. Process really, I think the key thing for us is just making them comfortable um, that we're not here to take over their business. We're here more to support them and help them grow into the 21st or 22nd century in that sense. Because I, I, I think more and more they're starting to realize that um, if they stay stagnant, um, there's so much they can do and they need that capital to grow. And the option of borrowing money from banks, there's, there's been, go back to 2009 when it, banks, there was a lot of issues with the banks. And 2014, 15, 16, crisis in Nigeria, in terms of Forex, oil crisis, etc. You had also major issues with people having banks, Colombia loans, uh, people going bankrupt, etc. So there's, there's more awareness that's Yes, even though I've had this for 40 years, I might have nothing to pass to the next generation when I'm bringing dead parties or an investor to help uh, provide governance and liquidity for the business. So, so, so that's slowly changing. Uh, but I see the key thing for us to get to invest in this company and partner with these businesses, how comfortable they feel with us and how they feel that we can actually support them versus coming to control them in that sense. In your term sheet, what are the key things that you're very precious about in order to protect you on the downside with some of those dynamics that you talk about, control, emotional attachment, family, liquidity? How do you structure it such that you're actually protected as a firm? It varies, right? It varies. And one of the things I try to put in every term sheet is that just making sure I get a minimum return no matter what happens. That protects my downside, knowing that is, uh, if anything goes wrong, this is the, best, this is the minimum return I get. Uh, so that's something I always put in. Uh, governance in terms of making sure we have the right board seats. I always try to make sure I have the CFO in, in place. So of course, we, we, we follow the money. So those are key things that we put in, in, in most of the deals we, we do. That's an interesting thing about putting CFO in place, <laughs> which can lead to a lot of dynamics in the company operationally. If the company has got their own CFO, how do you navigate that? Do you dismiss that person and then appoint your own person? No. So it's really a conversation at the end of the day. If, if there's a great CFO there and somebody that we can trust and work with, um, as long as we have the rights to retain or change, uh, then we're usually comfortable with that. And some of the questions I'll be asking will be showing my lack of understanding a lot about PE compared to VC. But I want to understand how do you navigate the thin line between being an investor and being operationally involved in a business as a PE investor without making entrepreneurs to look like they now have a boss that is controlling everything they do. So it's a thin line. As Berard were known as a very hands-on operational active investor, there's a thin, thin line in going in there and uh, trying to be the boss or, or acting like they're the boss versus actually being very supportive uh, of, of the business. So some of the things we do, in a sense, we don't go there and say, okay, you know, this is how you do things. We, we go there and be a more support in a sense. Do this this way, we think we can get this. So I spend a lot of my time not actually sitting in the office, but actually running around for the companies. I'm helping them develop their business, I'm getting the contacts they need, I'm marketing. I call myself the chief marketing officer for a lot of the businesses we're invested in. Um, so, so once you show that value that you're actually bringing value to the business, 
um, it seemed lots of conversations to improve the business versus actually being in control of the business. I know you're sector agnostic, but do you have like situation or opportunity thesis where you only invest in a business that you think that you can create value that will lead to that returns, where you see something in the business that you can tweak and optimize based on your experience of your network or on the expertise that you have in-house? Or is it that you just look for businesses that are open to external investors coming in and y- your capital can help them get to the next level? So, you know, there are various different ways, uh, I think, which people look at these things. Uh, for me, at least, as a firm, um, if I can't add value to your business, then there's just no point of me investing in your business. Uh, so, for me, it's critical. Everybody has capital. Uh, I think capital is easy to find. Capital, people are willing to give you capital at whatever cost uh, you're willing to pay for that capital. But for us, that's not our business model. And if I'm just bringing capital to you or to a business and have, just have the right to shut up and sit down, then it's not something really interesting to do. We want to make sure everything we invest in, we can actually add, leverage our resources, expertise, networks, to actually add value to the business because it's a win-win for us. If I'm a business where there's nothing I can do, if anything goes wrong, then maybe there's really no value I can add in there and it jeopardizes my investment. So I want to make sure that any business we invest in, we have how or we have a network of resources to help them. What are the specific value that you codify as a firm that you can easily add to it, businesses? So one of the key things, of course, we have strong networks across the country and globally, so we can always bring in strong business developments, which is help increase business and sense its sales, uh, its marketing, customers, etc. So that's something we, we, I think we're very good at, uh, helping uh, grow the businesses we're invested in. Of course, finance is one of our strengths, helping businesses uh, better manage your resources. Uh, so that's something we're also very good at. We also have built a team entirely uh, where we have um, uh, resources from HR resources to, like I said, financial, financial resources, etc. That really helps uh, support the businesses we're invested in. But then again, like I said, we're not really experts at anything. We just, we're just there to enhance what people are doing. We will not invest in a business that I think the person we're investing in doesn't know what they're doing. So every business we invest in, of course, we have to be very sure that we're back an entrepreneur that has strong expertise in that business. So you just aid what they're doing with your own expertise and experience and network, but you really back the entrepreneurs or the team that is within that business. Yes, we back entrepreneurs. I guess an entrepreneur, of course, comes with a team. So yes, we really try to back. Uh, the people in that business, but of course, like I said, making sure that we can actually do what we can to enhance that. that. That is a bit of a difference from some understanding that I have about private equity that will back businesses rather than the team. So they will say, okay, we've got the expertise, we've got a network, they've got the right people in place, and then they will back the business. They think that there's something that they can optimize in the business, and they'll probably maybe ease out the entrepreneur and the team. And then bring their own team into it. And, and I'm sure maybe that works for some people, but, but what do you think about that model versus what you're doing, which is you, you're coming in to back the team, but you're also having a very significant stake in the business? So two things there. One of it is that, yes, I, I will not back a business that, in, for example, in Nigeria, that the whole business model is to sell $10,000 bottle of champagne and hopes to scale up. That doesn't make sense. Of, of course, we won't do anything alcohol, but you, you get my points. Yeah. Um, we need to back a business that makes sense for us. That's the first criteria. Second criteria is the team fit and does the team know what they're doing? If that's yes, then we back that business. 
But going back to the team and businesses, I don't believe in taking over a business or investing in the business and letting the team go uh, because people make businesses. Um, you can invest in a business and create your, bring your own team in place and that team doesn't get it right because they don't have the, they might be very smart, but they don't have the right networks or the right know-how or the right expertise in dealing with that specific business or that specific industry or dealing with customers or they don't have the lead or the, the, the relationship builds over, over the years, etc. So for me, it's very, very important that anything we do that this is the right team is actually there to take the business forward. And I prefer to back existing teams or teams that actually I know, they know what they're doing, they've been in the business and they need that capital to go to the next level. Um, so that's our preference. I don't. I think it's a gamble when you take over a business. I mean, that's our opinion and my more strong opinion. But it's a gamble when you go take over XX business uh, from PE front and uh, say, oh, I'm taking over this business. I'm going to bring my own people. I, I think it's a bit, um, in, in some in some respects, a bit arrogant uh, in thinking that uh, anybody can come into anything and, and make it work. So that's one of the reasons also we're shying away from doing turnarounds in a sense. Uh, I think it was Buffett that says turnaround, sell and turn. There's a reason, fundamental reasons why if a business and a management is in there and it's not working, if you bring a new management, then you also get the same results. So that's a gamble on its own. So for us, our preference, like I said, is really to back the guys on, on ground and managing the team and understand the business and the people there. We can start a little bit back again and see where there is a venture building and the, the entrepreneurs, they're just starting, but the investors, we help them start it or, or hire the entrepreneur to an, into an idea. Is that something that could be of interest where your team come up with an idea, but you get an entrepreneur to run it from the start? So, so, so that, that, that happens, right? Um, I see that all the time, but I mean, for me, that's another thing where I don't have the uh, expertise to execute on that because I also fundamentally believe that if I come up with an idea and I have somebody executing on my idea from the very start, there's a level of dedication and passion that person might have or might not have about a business that might make it not work in, in that certain way, right? So uh, I always believe that if you look at uh, businesses and study a lot of businesses which I've done over, over years globally, businesses that were uh, founded by entrepreneurs, built by entrepreneurs to a certain level, they probably succeed more than any, any other business. Even looking at your venture model in a sense, yes, where we need backing people, my understanding of VC, my understanding of uh, investing, uh, VC was you're really backing a team and backing people in that sense. And that's, and you see those businesses grow exponentially. Uh, so, so for me, it's, yes, I can come up with an idea. Uh, and it, it's worked. It's worked in many, many places. I've seen that work in a, in a, few, in a number of uh, locations but uh, i think i have a strong preference for really backing people and backing teams let's talk a little bit about one of the interesting topics that i always hear investors more or talk about sometimes and, and that is about exit in africa generally I and mean, you've been very successful in exiting some of your businesses you've seen that more than some other people what is your general exit hypothesis for PE in africa and maybe for vc as well rather than for specific companies so i get asked this question a lot uh, and for me um it's something like uh, i'm very particular about so when i look at the stats from exits in africa are they very alarming uh, extremely alarming quite uh, successful in that uh, i think we've had over nine or so exits over the last 10 years or more and hopefully i was actually in the middle of uh, doing a few before corona slowed things down but uh, i think it goes to the saying out of war so to which i quote a lot uh, in talking about exits that the battle is won before it's fought um, so i have to figure out a way to exit a business before i go into the business and that's to be very sure that that's 
a clear way for exiting or that's a way that I can potentially exit. Uh, if I don't have a clear way to exit the business and invest in that business, if I don't feel there's a clear demand for that business at that point in time or at the time, potential time I'm going to exit, then uh, there's just no point of investing in the business because you're going to get stuck with something for quite a, quite a long time. So, so for us, it, it's when you're in that business, I think every day, it's constantly selling the business. Uh, yeah, I know there are occasions where I've been into a business and the minute I go into that business, I'm already talking to potential investors. I'm giving them updates from very start to say, okay, this is the business we invested in. This is how we're doing. Uh, this is how we're performing. And just letting them know on a regular basis how the business is doing, having inputs from them, etc. We can target a few people like that and having those discussions. So in two, three, four years, Okay, they know it's time to it's the right time to exit, uh, and it's the right time to look at the business for an exit or acquire the business. So one thing people in this in our markets in Africa, we're so used to making money quick in a sense. Money it's it's a very transactional transactional economy uh, across Nigeria and across Africa. Where it's what can I get now? What deal can I do now? And how much money can I make now? PE and investing is a very long term game. Uh, you invest, uh, and sometimes it takes five, six, seven years to actually realize what you have done and what you're doing. So you have to play that game patiently in that sense to be successful. I really want to double click on that, Eric. I want to talk about who are these investors that you go after and what are they looking for? And what sort of multiples are we talking about here? What what attracts them to that business? And how do you start a conversation with them even at the very beginning of you investing in business that doesn't stop them from going ahead and then invest alongside you rather than waiting for you to sell it to them later down the line? So it depends, right? It depends on the business and it depends on who, who you think might be potential investors. So a lot of businesses, of course, um, I think strategics might be very good fits. So one of the key things now is like, I'm heavily invested in what's a few insurance businesses in Nigeria. I think that a good exit for that business would be probably strategically down the line. So in that instance, it's now, okay, am I talking to those people that I think might be good exits and just showing them what I'm doing, having them understand some of the things we're doing uh, as a firm. But another good way to exit is that for us, we play in a space where we invest between 10 to about 30 or $40 million in tickets. There are a lot of bigger PE firms out there who have um, bigger pockets than bigger pockets than us and who are writing checks for $100 million or more. Uh, in that occasion, uh, it's really a trick. Can we invest, can we deploy a $25 million check, a $30 million check, and grow the businesses uh, to a point where it's attractive for a larger PE fund to come and invest? Uh, so, so, so it really depends on the play, uh, but sometimes it involves talking to those two different groups and understanding, okay, this is what we're doing and having them understand that our business over time. I mean, you can't co-invest with me because in, in most cases, because um, I might not need that co-investment at that point in time. I might be able to do what I need to do uh, to grow the business effectively. So that's typically our strategy, just understanding the right fit. But in those conversations, it's okay, from day one, do I reach out to this person? Do I trust that I can reach out to this person? Uh, and show them without actually giving us, giving our entire playbook to them. It's a very fluid market also, PE in Africa. One of the things that for me I'm comfortable about, I don't mind sharing strategies. I don't mind telling people, this is the roadmap, this is my plan. Everybody can come up with an idea in Nigeria, everybody can come up with an idea in Africa. Uh, anywhere in the world for that matter is, how can you execute on that idea? You know, I can show you my playbook and say, okay, this is what I'm going to do, and I'm, I'm going to execute on this. If in three years, four years, I'm able to execute on it, then of course it makes it a very attractive opportunity for you to come and do it on that. Um, but if you think, if you feel you want to replicate the strategy, uh, go ahead. 
in a sense. It's whoever executes better that wins at the end of the day. And I think we're very, we're very confident that in most cases, we, we have the ability to execute. We don't always get it right, but we believe that, yes, we can get it right. Do you do deals exclusively? And so when you go into a business, are you the only investors throughout the lifetime of that business from the time that you join? Or do you sometimes share deals? Yeah, we do We do have co-invest a lot, actually. But we tend to co-invest a lot with our own LPs, so people that back us. Uh, we tend to uh, give them co-invest opportunities to co-invest with us uh, on a lot of deals. Only if it makes strategic sense that we bring a strategy to co-invest with us if we feel that, yes, that strategy can later on be an exit for us. Okay. Uh, yes, we do. We do. But you don't share with other firms? Other PE firms, on one or two, on one or two occasions in the case, uh, we would look at opportunities like that also. But because we need to bring some strategy to the table. I want to talk about your strategy around sector-based investment. So I was looking at Orion, one of your investment vehicles. And I really want to understand the thesis and the strategy behind that. What are the thought process of going into education and then buying schools? So yeah, we've done that with a number of, of platforms, I'll say. Yeah, so there's Orion. We've done that in the education space. We've done that in the, in the insurance space. Um, and the reason for that, in a sense, is, is that we feel that, um, I, I think it was, it was uh, Bruce Lee that said, I fear not the man who practiced 10,000 kicks once. I fear the man who has practiced one kick 10,000 times. That same goes to the expertise in something. We feel, okay, if I invest in a school, with that school, I've got to understand how it works. I build expertise in that. I understand how the dynamics of the business works. So why don't I build on that expertise and scale up in that sense? Uh, so that's creating that platform. Because I know how this works, I can build up on it, add more to it, and create a much larger platform on that basis. So for us, it's really trying to come up with platforms around areas of expertise and things we understand. And really growing that from maybe a small platform to a much bigger platform, which can scale and later uh, divest or, or do a deal for much later. So it's really making sure our circle of competence is focused to scale up as well as things we're doing. So I think we're going to do a lot more of those uh, where we look at businesses and try to do platforms around them. This is trying to do a hundred different things at the same time. They're really focused on, on building something or, or a few things at uh, once, putting a few eggs in, in a few baskets. When you say platform, what does that mean? Do, do they share resources? Of course. Okay. Of course. So there you, you share resources, you spread expertise, economies of scale, of course, happens in terms of reducing cost. You share ideas across board. You have bargaining power too, you know, where getting something from a supplier, I can, based on the, the scale I have, I'll have greater bargaining power in that, in that sense. So that's more like a holding company. Yeah, so a lot of our platforms become holding companies in that sense. How does that play out in terms of exit dynamics? Does that mean you have to sell the holding company rather than individual companies in there? Yeah, so we sell the platform. So we sell the holding company. So Orion, for example, it's a, our operating holding company that owns several schools. So if we're doing a deal, it actually, to rephrase that, we can sell the holding company in general or you can sell parts of it as different deal. So it's really how best we can get that exit uh, going or how best we can actually do a deal. But of course, through the process, we've created a more efficient structure that has scaled. But exit time really depends on how we decide to exit or how, what the buyers we want in that exit. The original founders in each of those businesses, would they have exited at that point or does that mean that their futures are now aligned together and they must sign up to that platform and to the exit opportunity that it presents to them? Or how does that work? It's a conversation. Nothing is set. Nothing is set in stone, but it's a conversation to have, right? Do they want to be part of a group? 
We don't want to do it. We don't have shares individually. So it's a conversation. And in some platforms, we buy we buy everything 100% or we buy majority. So it really depends. And it doesn't stop an investor from coming and owning. Let's say we have a platform, for example, like entrepreneurs on the platform combined own 40%. It doesn't stop a strategic or larger investor from coming and buying our shares in that platform. So it really depends. There's no set way to do it. I want you to help me draw out here the major difference between PE fund in Africa, the way it is played, uh, and VC that are coming up a lot now. I think the line's actually a lot clearer now than we do it before. You see a lot of PE firms doing new startup deals or investing in a few things. But I think uh, you have a lot more VC funds coming up in Africa, uh, which is quite interesting. And they really focused on the companies where they're pre-revenue companies or uh, pre-profit companies or pre-EBITDA companies and companies that are just about to start or scaling up and they're backing the team of you know, YPE is really investing in companies that have of course, set revenues, EBITDA, profits and earnings and are looking for capital to either scale or looking to sell 100% of the businesses while the VC business are injecting capital to grow. Valuations, of course, vary in PE. I think PE deals are slightly more conservative in terms of how they value businesses, betting more on what you're doing today, while VC betting more into the future. And the new VCs coming into play now, and I will include us into that, in the last five years, raising more money and also being able to invest in more businesses. How do you see that in terms of maybe competition for deals? Or do you see that as a way of feeding more into kind of business that you might want to invest in later in the future? No, I think it's fantastic. I mean, I'm actually very encouraging a lot of the VC firms coming on board. I think, yeah, they provide a lot of the risk capital that I want to have expertise on the PE side, in a sense. Uh, or my PE team, I don't have expertise on, on that side to do. We want to build a core competence on the PE side of investing in existing businesses and helping those businesses scale up operationally. But when VCs come in and invest in businesses and provide capital for them to actually go into more mature businesses, when they become mature, PE firms like me, uh, like our firm, can come in and buy those businesses. I get to ask a lot of entrepreneurs about the biggest challenge that they have and it's always talent and being able to get the right talent, retain them or manage them properly. And I want to get that from your own perspective, being someone who runs multiple businesses, but also someone who runs a firm, a private equity firm. How do you source talent in a country where there are a limited number of them? How do you source talent? It's impossible. It's very, very hard. Talent is, I think, the biggest challenge in running a PE firm and or in businesses is actually talent. You don't have enough people with talents to do a lot of things we need to do in the market. Yes, we're a lot of people in the country, but I noticed that even in the last, it's been tougher, really tough in the last two, three years. A lot of the key talents also in middle markets or middle market managers, they've all gotten on a plane, one way tickets to Canada, to Amsterdam, or most other places globally. So there's a massive exodus of talent. So it was hard before, but now it's a lot harder in a sense due to the massive the exodus of talent from the country. Uh, it, and, it's, and I think it's going to get increasingly difficult. So we need to do, as a country, train a lot more people, get a lot more people to understand how to run some of the things we need them to run from an operational perspective and a job perspective. It hurts my heart that a country of uh, 180 million people, a lot of us need to find and import talent from outside the country to the country, in a sense, to support some of our businesses. Especially now with COVID-19, uh, which, of course, uh, changes uh, business forever uh, going forward. Yeah. Uh, we're going to have a massive uh, unemployment rate in the country, but we also still need to fulfill the right uh, 
things uh, or the right rules for people. So it, it's a big problem. It's a massive, massive problem. And how are you managing that? Any tips for people who are also in the same place like you? In terms of talent? Yeah. We're taking it, we're taking it day by day. Day by day, yeah. So the other question I have for you is Emzo. Emzo is one of the iconic businesses that you have in your portfolio. Uh, do you still have them in your portfolio? Yes, we're still an investor in Emzo. How did that come about? I grew up knowing Emzo. And, and for a private equity firm to be able to have that, that that's, that's like a big coup. How did that happen, Eric? So yes, I know a lot of people have been trying to invest in the company for a while, from what I understand. Uh, but it just goes goes to us as a business where we want to invest in businesses with great brands that can stand the test of time. And that's one of our models to look for great names, invest in those businesses and, and help these businesses grow even further. Uh, so Emzo is something that we saw. I mean, it's a, it's a defensive business. Uh, even now with the virus, the COVID virus all around, yeah. uh, it's been what we've, we've been actually doing work okay as a business um so there we, we've an invited business we, we, we were quite keen to look at and we went knocking on the door and laid out how we can support and i think it's the bottom story one of the things we do you know, in, in talking to entrepreneurs or talking to business like that we don't sell ourselves as just an investor we sell who we are and what we can do uh, and value we can create for firms in that sense before we sell money like i said uh, amazon any everybody and anybody is willing to provide money to the firm we sold something different uh, in terms of the value we bring. I believe that's how we got it. That creates some challenge, right? A company like Amazon, and, and I hope and I think that they will be a very good defensive business, having lots of cash flow, profit every year. How do you manage holding that kind of company versus exiting? And how does that affect your IRR over time as a fund? So there's a clear balance, right? We can't hold it. I mean, there are businesses where one of the things with the PE model is that uh, you have to leave. Right, there are businesses where yes, you might want to remain there forever because you know it's going to grow, it's going to be good, and you're going to keep generating money. Uh, the intrinsic value is there over the long term, but you have to go in some locations. Yeah, I think everybody worries about the IRR, but one of the biggest things for us is not really the IRR. The biggest thing was how much multiple or how money can we get back, and what's multiple on investment capital. That's the biggest metric for us. I care more about that than I care about IRRs. In a sense, we need to do a deal. To exit, but we need to do a deal to sell or, or to realize our, our returns for any portfolio company. And once I'm comfortable that I know I can get the maximum return on investor capital at that given time. So for us, it, it's really can I get in year two if somebody offers me 10 times the amount I invested in the business? Of course, I'll take it, right? Uh, if I believe I can wait four, year five to get the same amount I'm thinking in year one, then I'll take it. If I believe I'll get 10 based on currency or my return on investment capital might be. Uh, slightly less than outsell. So it's, it's really, it's a, there's no clear science to it, uh, but the key thing is, is just the multiple of, of our investor capital I'm getting. Uh, that's what I really focus on. Yeah, yeah, I, I get that. Last question is about COVID. We are recording this on 13th of April. We're still in the middle of the COVID crisis. Nobody knows yet how this is going to land. But I just want to get your early view on, again, this is a hypothesis of how this might shape businesses private equity or investing generally in Africa, both in terms of types of company that might survive this and how do you raise money for them? How do you keep them going? And given that we don't have a lot of internet penetration yet, and also how do you do due diligence as an investor in a post-COVID world? I, I spent a lot of time thinking about this, the effect on businesses, how we approach investing, etc. on a post-COVID world. I wish... Uh, any of us had an experience, but I, I guess there's nobody in the world that actually has an experience 
on how to deal with this. And for us, as a country in Nigeria, it's a double whammy for us in a sense where we've had COVID, where everything's been shut down. Uh, also, of course, dropping oil, crude oil prices, which will affect Nigeria in a big way because we're a modern economy, which is focused on crude oil. And also, it's an interesting thing because in, with COVID now, you have a drop in both supply and in demand, right? So that's that's also something that's, that's going to happen. But until there's a vaccine for COVID and until everybody's comfortable, we're not going to return back to normal. Um, a lot of businesses and a lot of industries are going to be hard hit. So, of course, companies like uh, restaurants, uh, cinemas, chains, of course, uh, where uh, you carry social distance, uh, like even a cinema where you carry social distance. And even the airline industry, you're going to see a lot of that massive, massive hit. How do you interact? Or how does business work? Am I going to be able to fly to meetings as frequently as I can between the country? Or am I going to have to use what we're doing now, using a Zoom call or, or talking over the internet or Skype? How's that going to affect just how people in uh, even real estate markets, how people offices do I need to do this? People do this thing to go to the offices. One of the few things is that I think uh, talking to a lot of people in, in, in Nigeria and a lot of CEOs across different industries, but one thing is clear that uh, COVID has forced them to go into the digital transformation or digital age a lot yeah. quicker than uh, they went to, in a sense. So even a lot of banks today are quitting. Uh, a lot of bank staff are working from home. You can see that even our insurance business, a lot of us are working from home. So it, get, it begs a question. And you can see across other industries too, and even the financial services industries, you, what you thought you needed two people to do, now you're doing it with one person and you're probably doing it as efficiently as possible, right? What you, you, you need three people to do, you're doing it with two people in that, in that sense. And what you thought you can only get done in the office, they're doing it from home. Um, so... A few things are going to happen there where, yes, one thing, it's going to be a lot more efficient market going forward. So you're going to see businesses acting a lot more efficient than they were before. And people are going to be more mindful of costs. So you can see a lot of costs coming down in terms of how people operate their businesses. Yeah. So that's one of the positive things, more efficiency. Um, unfortunately, people are going to lose their jobs because uh, that also comes with uh, people doing things in a, in a different way. Um, so that that's one thing. Now, um, going forward in the industries and how we invest and how we do these things, if you can adapt or a business that has not been able to adapt to the new age of digital or you're, you're not able to adapt to distributing your products or reaching out to customers in a digital way, I think it's something I'm probably not going to be able to do in terms of investing in such a business. That's on one hand. But on the other hand, we're going to look for, of course, more defensive businesses. We talked about MZL, for example, which are looking for that's a business I'm happy to be invested in today because it's a very defensive business. Uh, COVID or whatever happens globally, we're going to need those things. We're going to need medicine. We're going to need food. So those are, we're going to need internet in a sense, right? And so those are things that in the post, we're going to look to do more of those things that are very defensive, which we already do in a post-COVID world, right? One of the things I'm, we talked about investment in schools, it's obvious though, like I think I've talked to parents I've talked to schools over the last uh, couple of weeks. Homeschooling, it's, it's possible, but it's very difficult. Kids still have to go back to school to get the classroom. I, I strongly believe that. Uh, so that's something we have to find a way around it in, in that sense. So these are businesses where there's some things that have to change and there are things that won't change. So if it's an essential service, I'm going to do a lot more of that. If, it's some, if your business can adapt to today's world, digital world, then it's a problem, right? So you're going to see a shift. People probably going less to cinemas and watching more Netflix or watching more online movies and stuff. So that's another way to adapt, looking at that sector. 
So, I mean, every sector, you have to look at it with a microscope. Uh, how flexible are they? Is it essential? If it's not an essential good, okay, fine. They're not essential, but how flexible are you to adapt them in a world where people are more conscious about their health? People are more conscious about social interactions, where people are more conscious about going out. If you're not flexible to adapt to that, then that's a problem, right? So a lot of, you're going to see a lot of more sectors also. But I, I think it's very sad about what's going on for businesses. Businesses are, are, are closing. Uh, businesses are shutting down. Businesses are not being able to actually meet any revenues or pay staff. But what you're going to see is that you're going to have new business, new sectors created, new economies created. You're going to have blue ocean, blue oceans now, where you have to come up with different ideas and uh, engage in different things, and different concepts. Uh, so it's going to be very, very interesting in the next 18 months. I think if you're aggressive and you're strong, that you can really survive what's going to come. One of the ways in which I've been looking at it as, as well is to look at it in terms of timeline. So there is the, the next 18 months, like you said, the pre-vaccine COVID world. We, some businesses will not be able to survive that. But also there's the post-vaccine COVID world, which might not totally return to the normal that we have before, but will have some semblance of that. And that will be opening up of some businesses without the social distancing. But then with a kind of knowledge about, yeah, this business has to be able to adapt and change if there's another new strain of um, virus that comes later down the line. Uh, and I agree with you on the fact that one has to look at essential businesses. But but do you also think that humans, are, we, we, we are that we change and we might forget over time and there will still be need for some businesses that are non-essential maybe long term maybe i didn't, i wasn't clear there i think yes there's definitely going to be need for those non-essential businesses no matter what right uh we're still going to need those things we're still going to do those things where uh, the non-essential businesses for example we're still going to do go to watch movies or do smaller things we're still we have to get on planes in any case uh, uh but you're right in a timeline in a sense for that right where in the next 18 months or the next two years before the vaccine is created, people are going to shy away from those things a lot. So you're going to see a massive impact on those businesses. But post that, everything is going to go back to almost normal, but it's going to take some time. So I still believe that those things are going to come back, right? But maybe come back with slight changes or slight adaptations of how they currently are. But the key thing for me, you know, as private equity fund, uh, one of the key things for me is that I, I can't invest forever and I can't wait forever, right? So... There are things where I'm going to invest in or, or not invest in based on okay, what changes are going to occur in the next 18 months, etc. So I strongly believe, yes, two, three years from now, social distancing, some of us might get used to it, but we're going to adapt very quickly and move on from that. And I would really like to end my interview with fire and question. I've reduced it to two now. So I'm going to ask you two questions and hopefully you can provide good answers to them. And one, of, one is, which book are you currently reading now or have read lately? One of my favorite books uh, I've read in the last couple of months, it's Bit Scaling. I'm not sure if you... Yeah, so By the founder of LinkedIn? Yes. Read of money. Yes, I, I read that a few months ago and I'm reading it again now. But for me, it's a great, great book on just how to look at business. And yeah, he focused on VC, venture and startups, but I think it applies a lot to even traditional businesses. So something that I read a few months ago that I'm reading again, and it's something that I think uh, everybody in business to try to pick up and read. Uh, and then also just recently read again, What It Takes by uh, Stephen Schwartzman, the founder of Blackstone. Those are two of my best books in the last six months, and I've read them twice now, go to them twice with the current shutdown i'll have to go and pick one of them i've, I've not read blisky i've heard a lot about it but i've not read it i think this is a reminder for me to pick it up what have you changed your mind on recently what view have you held in the past that you had to change your mind on recently 
I think with COVID-19, you have to go back and think a lot about how things are, how the world has changed, how it's affecting things in, in that sense. I was really against the work from home mentality before. It's something that when people brought it up to me, I remember even in a meeting in January, one of the businesses we were invested in uh, suggested, oh, why don't we work from home on Fridays? And I shot everybody down and said, no, you have to come to the office, etc." So now I think that's one, that's one view that see, I, I see it actually work is being done that very efficiently in, in, even in that business with guys working from home. So one of the things um, I'm going to definitely institute a lot of our companies who are invested in it is maybe on a Friday or something or, or a certain day, have to work from home because that saves a lot of money in business also in terms of running costs on, 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 the, on the business itself. So that's one of my views that's just changed. It's going to change a lot. Also, I believe in having to do in-face meetings at every single time. I think now I'm a strong believer of video conference calls, more than ever. So, yeah, I guess my COVID has actually forced a lot of my behavior to change. I mean, yeah, a lot of people saw me as technological savvy, but I'm also very traditional. But I think I actually now go more towards being a more tech savvy in terms of approach of, of work environments and working, etc. Yeah, a lot of people are going through that transition like you as well. And maybe easier for you compared to some other people maybe who have been running business for 40, 50 years and telling them to now go online when they don't even know what Zoom is. And that, that would be more challenging. I'm going to sneak in one last question, which is what advice would you give to yourself 20 years ago that you now know now? <sighs> I don't think you have all day. But uh, <laughs> uh, <laughs> but uh, I think the biggest one of the some of the biggest advice I give myself twenty years ago is be patient. I, I think when you're young, you want everything now, 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 now. You want to get to where you want to get to as quickly as possible. I think uh, if I was more patient uh, in terms of looking more in the long term, I'll be much better off in a lot of things I've done. That's just uh, just taking a quick, easy route. So that's one thing that I know for sure. That's the biggest lesson I'll tell my younger self. Sense, just being a slightly more patient, but so you have time you know, in a sense uh, to really see things through. So that's the biggest lesson I'll say. Great, thanks a lot, Eric. It's been great having you on the show. I hope you enjoyed it as well. But thanks for your time today for coming to the show. Super, thanks a whole lot. Uh, stay safe. Yes, I will. Thanks for listening to this episode. Before you go, I'd like you to subscribe for this show wherever you listen to your podcast and leave a review if you can. You can also follow me on Twitter at drdotun, that is D-R-D-O-T-U-N, or through the website drdotun.com. <laughs>